All right, tonight's topic. If you've got the notes, you're going to need them. Tonight's topic is hell. Heaven and hell and eternity. And I want to say a word of prayer and to sort of start us off tonight, to get us in the mood to talk about hell. I want to read just an excerpt from a sermon. The name of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached in Field, Connecticut in 1743, I think, by Jonathan Edwards. And uh, you can find a recording of that. Max McLean did a recording of that. Uh, you can find it somewhere. It is unbelievable. Max McLean, he read the Bible. He's the one whose voice you hear reading the Bible. He took um, this, this sermon, preached it. The introduction is R.C. Sproul, so it's worth getting it just for the introduction. Uh, Max McLean's version of Sinners in the Hands of Anger God. Tonight you'll hear just a snippet of Clint Presley's version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let me uh, pray and we'll get started. Father, we ask you to help us to think deeply about who you are, who we are, how we are yours, what that means. Help us to think deeply, not only about heaven, which we long for, but hell, which, which we've avoided. And may the thoughts and the conversation about hell make our hearts heavy for those that are not in Christ. So, Lord, be honored here tonight. That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one moment. God certainly has made no promises either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death, but those promises which are contained in the covenant of grace. The promises that are given in Christ in whom all the promises are yes and amen. But surely they have no interest in the promise of the covenant of grace who are not the children of the covenant, who do not believe in any of the promises and have no interest in the mediator of the covenant. So that whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him for a moment from eternal destruction. So that thus it is the, that natural men <clears throat> are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell, they have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is great towards them as those that are already suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. They have no interest in the mediator. There are no means within them that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them Every moment is the mere arbitrary will and the uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance 
of an incensed God. The use of this awful subject may be for the awakening of the unconverted persons to a conviction of their danger. This that you have heard is the case of everyone who is not in Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon or anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You are probably not aware of this. You find that you are kept out of hell, but do not see the hand of God in it. But you look at other things as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care for your own life, and the means that you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw His hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person who is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you heavy as lead, pulling you downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and the best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to hold you up and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. For you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption unwillingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust. Nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for, bre for breath to maintain the flame of life while you spend your life in service of God's enemies. God's creation is good. God's creation was made for men to serve God with. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of God. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your head. Full of the dreadful storm, big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, they would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God... For the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are restrained for the present. But they increase more and more and they rise higher and higher. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day gaining more wrath. The waters are constantly rising, the waxing waters, the waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds back the waters. They are unwilling to be stopped and they press hard to go forward if God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate. It would immediately fly open 
and the fiery floods of the fierceness and the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yeah, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand his fury. The bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is made ready on the string and justice directs the bow at your heart. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all, thus all you that never pass under a great change of heart by the, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a new state of life are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have made religious experiences and may keep up a form of religion in your families and in the house of God. It is nothing but his pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up into everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, when you die, you will be fully convinced. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now you take the, the doctrine. <clears throat> it's the doctrine we believe. We believe in hell. And you listen to how Jonathan Edwards used that. And by the way, that sermon is largely thought of as the beginning of the first great awakening in the United States. That God used that as the first great awakening that swept throughout New England. How that understanding and preaching about hell, take that and compare it to what you might hear in a church today about hell. The question on the hour that we're talking about, is hell real? Well, there's no real way to, to prove that except to say we as those that believe in the Bible, we take with a presupposition. We start with the Bible and we start asking questions. So, Here's my first point. Let's go to it. Here's an introduction to hell, which I, I wish I was more creative. It didn't actually sound good now that I've said it, but an introduction to hell. What does the Bible teach us? John chapter 5, verse 28, we learn that everyone will exist eternally in heaven or hell. Jesus himself says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all dead people, saved and unsaved, will hear his voice. And then from that will come judgment. One of the places we got to start is the truth that all of us, saved and unsaved, everybody in here, from this point forward will live in some capacity eternally. That's what the Bible teaches. What else? <clears throat> we learn from the Bible that, um, I'll take it down to B, <clears throat> that everyone has one life and one chance. You don't think about it very much. We waste a lot of time. We do things that are not necessary. <clears throat> but when you think of salvation, it's good for us to remember what Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as is it, it appointed for man to die once, and after that, there's judgment. So we have one life, <clears throat> one opportunity, long or short, to actually turn from sin and turn to Christ. What's amazing is that hell in its origin 
Let's see. Hell was originally designed for Satan and his enemies. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire. Okay, that's hell, eternal fire that was prepared, was made for the devil and his angels. Originally made for Satan and his demons. Or in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So originally, when you think of hell, you think of Satan and the fallen angels. Oh, let's keep moving. Because I've got a lot here I want to show you. <clears throat> this is just sort of an intro. Hell is a place described in the Bible... Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. So eternal punishment that you are aware of. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So here, description of the end in Revelation. You have a description of eternal torment forever and ever, no rest, day or night. So that you have a fully cognitive understanding that there is genuine punishment coming. In fact, you push that further, <clears throat> you find out at E, hell is experienced by the whole person. Which I found that to be interesting. So if we're going to be at the resurrection, have new resurrection bodies, and at, when the new heaven and the new earth in eternity, the consummation of everything, when we live with, with new bodies, there is this understanding that those that are not in Christ will suffer as a whole person, not just souls. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, by the way, we'll get to what Jesus says about hell. You know, Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. More than it's found, most of what we're seeing here is these are things that Jesus said about hell. So let me just pause and say, if, so you, you, you may ask, is hell, is it real? Well, we're putting a lot of faith in what Jesus has said. So if we trust what Jesus says, and he says hell is real, and he's described it, then you and I follow that logic. We say, yes, if Jesus says it, we believe it. Okay, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. <clears throat> if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body, your whole body, be thrown into hell. Same is true with your right hand. If it causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body. Here's Jesus he, in the Sermon on the Mount, and the main point is not teaching about hell, but here we have a sub-point that tells us that it's better. This is the severity of sin 
It's better to lose part of your body than that your whole body, all of you, goes to hell. In fact, he says it again, Matthew chapter 28, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Not just soul, body and soul. What else do we know about hell? Let's get some things down clearly. F. <clears throat> hell is fire. The fire you hear, you hear the, the phrase, the fires of hell. And sometimes that can become cliche-ish and, and cartoonish. But let's remember what Jesus says about hell and the fire there. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Mark 9, 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire, the fire is not quenched. James 3, 6. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is met is among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and is set on fire by hell. Now, let your mind go into some gruesome territory if, if you're going to be soul and body in hell. Think of, uh, think of the times that you have seen a burn victim that has been through a third degree burn and their whole body and body parts burned. To, to where you're indistinguishable. Think of that being in an eternity and the anguish that goes with all of that. You take all of that sort of whatever you can come up with and even beyond that and bring it down to an understanding of what hell, what Jesus says hell is like. In fact, he says that it's a lake of fire. In Revelation 19, lake of fire. And the beast was captured with a false and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You hear people talk about sulfur and brimstone. Well, don't move too far from that. It's in the Bible. That there is this terrible burning fire that has this unbelievable stench, a literal Never-ending lake of fire. You add to that in chapter 20, verse 20, that hell is described as a bottomless pit. So you fall into this lake of fire, burning. Angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. What about hell? Where does it, where does it happen? Hell comes after judgment. But there will be last judgment and eternal separation. We'll talk about that. And it comes out. Let me give you, read you a long passage that Jesus gives. Hell comes after judgment. Jesus says, And cast the worthless servant into... It's in the middle of a parable. I'll just pull this out of a parable. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will, anger him, uh, will answer him and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry? When do we feed or see you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer and say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will turn to those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell comes after judgment. What is the reason? Why is there a hell? One of the most famous Bible verses, John chapter 3, verse 16, it should not be read alone. You must read it with John 16, 17, and 18. What does Jesus say in John 3, 16, 17, and 18? In that passage, you find out why. Okay, here's the, the good news. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, heaven, not perish, won't go to hell, but will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but, contrast, Whoever does not believe, look at the language, already, is already, is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. So the default condition, it's important for us to get this. <clears throat> the default condition of all people on earth is hell is the destination. That's the default. Sometimes we feel like that, that there's this sort of neutral default. That people live their lives and could go one way or the other. That's not what the Bible, that's not what Jesus himself said. After quoting, saying John 3, 16, he gives us 18, those that don't believe already are condemned. Okay, with that, that being said, let's, Let's just read a couple of things Jesus said about hell. We can't read them all. We can't read them all. But let's get Jesus' take on hell. What is his take? If Christ is our Savior, he is our teacher, he is our example. If he is our North Star, I'm going through Philippians 2. If he's our example in humility, then we hear what he says. And he taught in parables. What well, is something he teaches about hell? He teaches that there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. A great chasm. You know the parable. It's uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Not Lazarus raised from the dead, but Lazarus who was poor and a rich man. <clears throat> Let me read it. 
16 verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 19 and following. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. You are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he might warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, and here is a Jesus giving a prophecy of the crucifixion and resurrection. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So a couple of things. One is Jesus in the midst of that parable teaches that there is a great separation. That's one thing he teaches. Another thing he teaches is that you don't have to have seen the resurrection of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to have seen it to actually put our faith in Christ and be saved. Jesus himself says, if you have the Bible, that's enough. If you have Moses and the prophets, they have that, you can believe with that. And if they won't believe with that, you can see any miracle and it still won't be enough. Not only the great chasm, I'll go another way. Uh, in the same passage, there's actually no return from hell. Just uh, if you have it in your Bible or, or we'll have it up here, we'll go to verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's no crossing over. This would speak to, I think, the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory that really operated oftentimes to raise money. It was used to raise money. And that was something that the Protestant Reformation fought against. One of the things that Martin Luther stood against was uh, the indulgences. You could pay enough money, and if you paid enough, then you were buying off years of people in purgatory, people that you love, and they'll be out of there soon, and would come on to heaven. And when you read the Bible, you find out that's not what the Bible says. 
What else does Jesus talk about when he talks about hell? He also says that it's a place of eternal torment. In that same passage, I, I really like Luke 16, the passage of uh, Lazarus and the, the rich man, because it displays, there's so much it says about heaven and hell, about how it works. Verse 23 of chapter 16, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, this rich man, he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. If you go and read the rest of it, he, he says, let Lazarus put his finger in some water and just drop a little bit on my tongue. That's the kind of Jesus is teaching that hell is a place of eternal torment. Matthew, in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches a, about a great separation. Hell is a place of great separation. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. I'll call your attention down to verse 41. Let's just go all the way down. I won't read all of it. Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Same thing we read earlier. But here we focus on the fact it is eternal, a great separation. Those are on the right, those are on the left, the sheep and the goats. You know, we, we say that. You see it in so much we talk about, being in Christ, not being in Christ. When we do the Lord's Supper, when we do the Lord's Supper, we ask those that have not been baptized, put their faith in Jesus, to not take the Lord's Supper so that there is a tangible reminder, some are in, some are out. I mean, even with, um, even with church membership, like there are lots of people who have their name on the roll and will give you this sort of this security thinking that you're a Christian and we want to make sure we don't give false security. We believe that following Christ would at least include being part of the fellowship. And Christ, when he talks about heaven and hell, he says there's a great separation. Jesus describes hell as an unquenchable fire. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter crippled than with two hands to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. So you think about the third degree burns that, that would burn and you've seen people's ears, their heads. Unquenchable fire. That's not bad enough. Jesus says that... Um, that it's a place where the worm doesn't die. Mark 9, 48, in the same passage, where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched, where the maggots don't quit boring into flesh. It's a terrible, terrible picture. Jesus says that hell is a place of anguish and regret. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. He left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, 
there's weeping, and that gnashing of teeth is this, this anguish and regret. So, so the indication is that Jesus, is, he's teaching about hell, that when you go there, you're overcome with emotion, your heart is broken, and you weep. And in anguish, it sounds terrible. Jesus taught that, um, that hell was likened to Gehenna. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, um, you hear or see the word hell, especially when Jesus uses it. For instance, in Mark chapter, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, that word hell, sometimes you'll see it at the bottom of your Bible, you might see in the apparatus and the notes at the bottom, will say this is actually Gehenna is the word. Why does Jesus use that word? I'll just read the verse. Do not fear for those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. The word Gehenna has a long history. It comes from a place that's the, the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-A-M, I think. That valley, at the time of Jesus, was a garbage dump. Uh, garbage there would decompose and catch fire. It's a terrible, nasty, stinking... I mean, you've been to a, buy a garbage dump. But, but prior to that, and years before that, that valley was where Ahaz and many of the eagle, uh, evil kings uh, had sacrificed their children and burnt them to, to the god Molech. And, and the history from the time that the pagans had it and the time that the Jews made it a... a, a a garbage dump, and all of that history behind gives an illusion. So Jesus uses that as an example. That is what hell is like. Jesus says uh, further that hell is the just, the just punishment for sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. <clears throat> But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. See how the escalation? It's not just murder. And whoever says you fool will be liable, because it's what you deserve, is the hell of fire. That's a pretty significant thing. You think about the flippant things that we say or think, the attitudes we might have, how flippant that might be, and that alone, is enough to be punished. Hell will be populated. I won't go into it uh, very much, but in Matthew chapter 22, he teaches a, a parable of the kingdom and he can't get people to come into the kingdom. Let me take you to the end of the parable. Verse 11. But when the king came in and to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, see it, this is where it comes from, few are chosen. Even Jonathan Edwards in The Sinners in the Hands of an Anger God talks about how hell we will be overpopulated. There'll be more in hell than in heaven. 
We see that even in life, a number of Christians professing believers, that hell will be populated. How do we avoid then? Let's go to the avoidance. Let's talk about the avoidance of hell. I gave you the word propitiation. It's an important word for Christian theology. It's an important word for us. It's an important word for how we understand the why of Christianity. Why does it matter? Was Jesus just our example? Did he die as a martyr? When we talk about Christ on the cross, what do we mean? The word propitiation is the turning away of wrath. That Jesus Christ, his death on the cross was a sufficient sacrifice that turned away the anger of God that I read to you from sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's all over the Bible in the New Testament. I just chose a verse. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 To wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who has delivered us from the wrath of God. So when we talk about people being converted and what becoming a Christian means, it's not just that you're going to be more fulfilled, that life will be better, that you will have a deeper joy. Those things are true. But the biggest problem we have is that the wrath of God is being stored up for those without Christ. And when you are in Christ, the wrath that we deserve is turned away. That's propitiation. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. We also would um, maybe put there the word substitution. I don't have it on the paper there, but I would write that one down. Substitution. For us to understand Christianity, we must understand Jesus in our place. That God killed His Son instead of killing me. We, we see that in Isaiah 53. We covered that in, on Good Friday. Verse 5 says... That he was pierced for our transgressions. You see, he's pierced for our transgressions. See the substitute? He's crushed our iniquities. He was chastised. We get the peace. We all have like, like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's us. That's our sin. And the Lord, he's a substitute, put on him the iniquity of us all. How do we avoid hell? It's not by our own doing. We look to Jesus, our substitute. Propitiation. It's a beautiful word. Substitute. It's a beautiful word. There's another word that we need to take hold of when we talk about the wrath of God and we talk about hell. It's the word love. The love of God. You, you've got John 3.16, but, but you, you, you drill into 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. Go and read that sometime and, and drink the affection of a heavenly Father in Christ for you. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. He loved you and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God, who is no longer angry at you. Was God angry at you when you were outside of Christ? Yes. You were under the condemnation. Jesus said that, John 3, 18. When you come in Christ, Jesus took the wrath of God. The anger is gone. And then I would say, not just propitiation, faith, or love, see the love of God, propitiation, but it takes faith. 
It's not automatic. You've got to believe. John 3.16, that God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, whoever believes. doesn't just put that on you. It comes through you turning and saying, that is how I'm going to be saved. Let's learn some lessons from hell. Lessons. What do we learn? When we talk about hell, what do we learn? Let me give you a couple of things. One is the immensity of evil. You might even want to write down the word total, total depravity. Total depravity. When I say total depravity, I don't mean that we are as evil as we could possibly be. Total depravity is that every part of us, we are totally infected with sin. So even our good intentions are sinful. Old Puritans would say that even our tears of repentance need to be repented of. That, that totally, that all of who we are is some way tainted in some way by sin. We learned that. If there was one shred of what kept us good, if people were born new, neutral, be careful how you say things, people are basically good. They are not. Now society has helped us. So the good thing about laws and having society, God's common grace, it help us, helps us function, but basically at the core, we are sinners. It's total depravity. Hell teaches us things about um, how, how, how much does God actually hate my sin? I mean, to create this, this place called hell and all of the terrible ways it's been described by Jesus himself, how serious should I actually take sin? Or, when I think about the immensity of sin... Hell reminds me of the need for God's restraint on evil and thank God for laws. Just the common grace of living in a society that actually still has laws that holds back, law holds back some of that evil. Something else, uh, what does hell teach us? Teaches the dangers of rebelling against God. That there is a danger our hearts tend toward rebellion against God. It's from Adam and Eve. We inherited that. And when you're outside of Christ, that rebellion against God. It, it, and for a Christian, it infor hell informs the role of obedience. It reminds us that, okay, certainly saved by God's grace, and that's wonderful. We thank God for that. We then live a life of obedience because hell is a result of disobedience. I'll tell you something else, that uh, doctrine of hell. Hell uh, reminds us of the, the peril that people are in. Like if you knew somebody was going to fall into the, a boiling cauldron of red hot metal and they hit it, they would, their skin would flake off, you would do all you could to keep them from it. Right? And so you, when you think about hell like it's been described in the Bible, I, just studying it today, I thought, man... I fear for people that are going to burn up. Or that should that drives the urgency of evangelism. When you think about hell, it gives us this new urgency to, to get over a social fear to, to what keeps you from sharing Christ, to make it a priority. It wouldn't be a social fear if you, fall them, if you saw them falling off into a cauldron. You would run and stop it. 
And I started thinking about our church and about ministry, but how we do things. How should we, in light of, of hell, how should we reorder some of the ministries that we do? And, and, and missions. Um, <clears throat> hell gives us a new thought on, on prayer. What is the lesson from hell? Teaching me to pray. Pray for, for the harvest. Pray for workers. God would call men and women into ministry from Hickory Grove. Pray for people you know and love that, are, that, are, that don't have Christ. Pray that God would raise up gospel churches. There's a dearth of gospel churches in Charlotte. And pray for individual people's souls. Write them down. That's why we do the whole, who's your one? It's because of hell. Look, hell teaches me about the holiness of God. He will not tolerate or be in the presence of sin. God will be in hell. He will be glorified in heaven and hell, but not like he will be in heaven. Hell teaches me the significance of grace. It's unbelievable that any of us are saved. It's unbelievable that we all were destined to go to hell. When I think of hell, I think about my own life and the significance of grace that I should be a happier person because if nothing else goes right in my life today and it rains on a Wednesday and a Sunday, that's the very worst thing that's going to happen. I'm not going to hell. There's some, there's some joy in knowing and also helps put some things in perspective that sometimes we just put too much energy into. It's a call for gratitude. When I think of hell, it ought to make my heart be filled with gratitude to God for saving me because there was nothing in me that attracted God to me that in His good grace, I heard the gospel, it clicked, and He saved me. When you think of hell, you personally, it ought to do something by way of gratitude. Think about hell. There's a comp it, it makes you compassionate to people. Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 9 after a wonderful chapter 8 and so beautiful chapter. Chapter 9 gets weird and hard. And in chapter, Romans chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, he talks about his, his kinsmen according to the flesh that he would himself, he's so worried about them, I would be condemned if I could get them, if I could just get them saved. Hell reminds me of God's, God's justice. I'll close with that. I'll close there. With God's justice, let me, let me read something to you. Romans chapter 3. You just listen to this verse and I'll, I'll pray. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. Okay, listen. He's just maintaining His holiness, His justice, and... The cross makes it so that he is also the justifier of those whose faith is in Jesus. So that his holiness is maintained, his justice is held intact, his mercy is poured out, his love is revealed at the cross of Jesus. When I read about hell, it makes me run quickly to the cross. And I hope it will do the same for you. Father, thank you for... The grace that you've given us in Jesus, thank you that the only hell that we'll ever have to suffer is what we've read about. Give us a deeper gratitude, a better heart to share the gospel. We thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.